Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, aide-de-camp to General Stanley McChrystal and Navy SEAL Chris Fussell joins us to share psychology, mindset, and leadership lessons from how challenges faced in Iraq can be relevant to countless businesses, nonprofits, and other organizations. Chris, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. 
Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, reaching out. Yeah, it, well, it is my pleasure. You know, I came across your work by way of a publicist at Penguin, who I'm publishing a book with. And when they told me uh, about the book that you guys have co-written and uh, the work that you do, I was immediately intrigued because up until now, I don't think we've had anybody from, uh, you know, the military or the Navy SEALs here. And when I knew that you were a Navy SEAL, I was like, yeah, I definitely want to have this conversation because I can only imagine what direction it will go. Uh so on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, uh, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to where you're at in the world and what you're up to? Um, yeah, sure, sure. So uh, I'll start with maybe the now and then go go back a bit. So um, first and foremost, I'm a, a father of two crazy little kids and a, a husband to a great wife. Uh, we live here in Washington, D.C., where, where our practice is based out of Alexandria, Virginia, so old, old town Alexandria. Um when the group is uh, the McChrystal Group, so we've been here for about uh, three, four years. So prior to that, I got out of the uh, service in 2012 off active duty, and I had spent about 15 years in the SEAL teams. Um, I went through uh, co- college, the University of Richmond in Virginia. I grew up in Virginia, and then I uh, grew up as an athlete, which is maybe, we may circle back to sort of the mindset maybe of the community and whatnot. I, I grew up wrestling and doing some other sports and whatnot, but that always grew up in that sort of team mentality. So when I, when I graduated college, um, was sort of looking for the next challenge along those lines. So, uh, went, went into the, the Navy, got my commission, uh, in 1997 and then straight out to the, um, the basic training for the SEALs, which is all in Coronado Island in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And so I was there for about a year. And then in 98 came out to the East coast and, uh, the SEAL teams are either, you're either in San Diego or Virginia beach for the most part. So I did the majority of my career. I was attached to SEAL teams on the, on the East coast in Virginia. And, you know, in the nineties, uh, I was there for about three or four years before nine 11, we were doing a lot of sort of engagement, um, sort of stuff overseas. Uh, it, I, I did most of my work in Europe, working with European special operations teams, those sorts of things, but mostly training and, and relationship stuff. Uh, and then after 9/11, obviously the whole world sort of sort of changed. And then the next 10 years or so were 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 a big blur. Um, I, I um, spent 10 years uh, of my career basically uh, inside of the the Joint Special Operations Command, which is a uh, you know the the counterterrorism unit inside of um, the special operations uh, community. Um, and so that was a really formative part of my career, obviously, which led to a lot of the ideas that we're uh, working on now on the, on the business side. So I spent a few years at the tactical level, you know, working overseas um, with, with various units, both between Iraq and Afghanistan, and then sort of moved up to the, you know, the military is like any other business. You had sort of the frontline folks, the mid-managers, and the, and the strategic level uh, folks. And so I spent some time in, on you know at the ground level, and then then lived in the operational world for, for a bit, and then I had a pretty unique opportunity to go uh, and be General Stan McChrystal's, who was then a three-star general, and he was running all of Joint Special Operations Command, uh, a command that he was uh, in charge of for five years, which is pretty unique. So from 2003 to 2008, he ran that whole whole uh, organization about two two and a half times longer than the normal tour, and that was sort of uh, a factor of the fact that we were at such an intense period in the in the conflict, and his role was so critical that he ended up staying there for quite a long time. So, from 2007 2008, I was uh, overseas, uh, mostly in Iraq, with uh, serving as as Stan's aide de camp, um, which is sort of like a chief of staff sort of role if you think of it in the corporate environment. And then 2008, uh, I left the staff and went uh, to Monterey, California. Spent about a, a little over a year in, in grad school at the Naval Post Grad School. And then went back into um, the JSOC community for about another three years. And then 2012, uh, left active duty service and, and, and joined the group here. Uh, and so that's, that sort of brings us up to the current current day. Cool, cool. Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff here and, and so many questions that are already starting to bubble up in my mind. But, you know, I, I want to do something that I've been known to do and, and something that I, I like to start with, which is, you know, looking back at sort of uh, formative moments, formative experiences and inflection points early, early in your life, like when you were growing up, I mean, you mentioned sports, but even before that, that would ultimately lead you down this path. I mean, are there things that you think ultimately, you know, put you in a place where you're destined to become a Navy SEAL? Uh, wow. Sort of uh, put me on the couch here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, I think like any other uh, 
this Navy SEALs is definitely one of those organizations that you you join or you try to join for one reason, and then you end up staying for another. Um, you can't really translate to the external community what it's like to be a, a Navy SEAL or a, you know a, a, a kindergarten teacher or a surgeon or, or any, any sort of niche environment. Uh, mm-hmm. You have one concept of what it's going to look like that you're drawn to, and then when you get in there, you realize, okay, this is what it's really like. So I say that because what what drew me in was probably, you know, if I want to go back to like formative facts about who I am, you know, I was, a, I was the youngest of four kids. Um, so I probably had, you know, little kid brother syndrome, you know, we, we were all competitive athletes. Um, we got <laughs> competitive worse and worse as we got younger. So I was, uh, you know, I was decent, but nothing like, you know, the rest of my, my family in the big picture. Um, and so I probably, you know, early in life was drawn to, you know, the next thing to sort of prove my, my place in the world, which is not uncommon for, I think, you know, more elite military units. It's mm-hmm. a great way for, you know, young sort of alpha driven people to, to sort of test their mettle um, against whatever their internal drivers are um, that make them want to do so. It's not unlike, you know, the 22 year old extreme uh, parachutist you'll find or rock climber or big wave surfer, or, you know, that sort of mentality of, there's something going on in in those minds that you're drawn <laughs> to that level of sort of finding your own personal edge. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you're, you're solving for some sort of internal equation. I'm, I, I'm, I'm no better than the next person when it comes to that, I'm sure. Okay, so that raises a couple of different questions. I'm glad you brought up the example of big wave surfers because I'm an avid surfer myself, and I always wonder if those guys have a few screws loose to be able to do that. Um, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I it's interesting, like one person's loose screw is another person's, you know, high performer. So <laughs> I, have certainly, there's probably things about me. People would say has loose screws. I think I'm a pretty buttoned up person. Um, I've been around people that I say that person's got a loose screw, uh-huh. <laughs> but when you look at what they're capable of, you know, big wave surfing is a great example, or, uh, I'm a, I'm an avid rock climber. I mean, there's, there's folks in that world that certainly push boundaries, but when you see how they do it, you say, you know what, he's, if I was doing that, that certainly would be a loose screw. And when, when he or she is doing it, they're they're well within their skill set. They're just finding their own sort of personal envelope they want to explore. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. You, so you mentioned this idea of, of sort of this internal equation, and I'm curious, you know, if you could uh, dissect what yours is. I mean, how would you express it? Like, what would you say it is? What would I say? My my what is? I'm sorry. Your your internal equation that kind of drove you into all of this. Um. Good question. Uh, I mean, as as I graduated college, you know, I'm like any other 22, 23 year old individual who's you know done sort of physical team based things during their life. Uh, and so I said, okay, where's the, where's the next outlet there, and where's the next thing that um, I think is going to sort of challenge me to become my best self in that space? Um, and you know, I sort of half jokingly say, you know, if, if you if you think about the reputation of the of the Navy SEALs mm-hmm. as a, um, you know, some some truth, some myth. You know, there's a lot a lot of truth to the, the difficulty of the of the um, selection process to get through it. That draws in a certain type of person, and um, you know, you're definitely I, I wouldn't say you have a, a loose screw, but you are you are out to challenge yourself as deep as you can if that's your goal. Is you know a young person joining the military that you want to join what what publicly is seen as one of the most you know elite difficult selective units um you want to test yourself you want to make you want to prove to yourself that you're in the 20 percent that can make it through that sort of training pipeline so that was probably the you know the question i was wrestling with and trying trying to answer mm. and you know like i said you, you you go into it with that mentality you make it through the selection you pat yourself on the back for about a day and then you realize okay now a whole new wave of, of, of life is about to start. And then when you look back five, 10, 15 years down the road, um, sort of it, there's, there's a few step functions that you go through as you go through your career and they would have, they, they continue as you get older and more senior as to sort of reevaluating, okay, what is the current thing that's driving me to be part of this community? You know, and 10 years in, you're not there to, um, prove that you're, you know, you're a part of that 20%. Obviously you are, you are. So, you, mm-hmm. so now you're out to, to, to serve some greater mission or to be part of a really elite, uh, fighting unit or to, uh, play a part in sort of 
geopolitical history or whatever the case may be, but you're constantly re reevaluating um, what it is that makes you want to be part of the community. Hmm. Let me ask you this. You know, you mentioned uh, a big part of what drove you was this uh, desire to challenge yourself and push yourself to that level. Do you think that that desire uh, to challenge oneself uh, at that capacity is something that can be learned or do you think it's something that's inherently built into people like you? Hmm. Um, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, I think everyone has some level of it. I would say the majority of people have some some level of it. Uh-huh. I think it's probably but I think it's probably part of human nature at some level to try to um, push your your boundaries. I think one of the interesting things, and and actually one of the one of the unique uh, things about the special operations community, and one of the things we see, I think, as a challenge on the corporate side, is most people really never find a steady sort of outlet and flow in their lives that allows them to tap into that. Um, most organizations uh, are not designed to allow people to really express and push their own boundaries. Um, it's just, and this is one of the things we try to explore in um, Team of Teams, uh-huh. which is, you know, the, the historic systems post-Industrial Revolution were designed to... Um, optimize for a specific skill set, which is sort of the antithesis of like finding and exploring your own sort of creative boundaries. Um, but what we found in the special operations community, though, even that was part of the, the, the ethos of the community. That's definitely the type of individual you attract. Um, the system st- can still take over because systems ultimately want to control and be predictable and get the, get the most of one thing or a few things that they know about out of individuals. They don't want, they're not designed to just allow creative networks to establish themselves as needed uh, based on the problems they're, they're seeing. And once we were able to put that into the system, obviously it worked exponentially better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that, that creative sort of um, flair exists in the majority of people, probably not everyone, but I think the real challenge is most people don't have the outlet to, um, feel like their organizations are in that, that that's truly tapped into uh, and fulfilling for them. How do we start to design our own lives to express the boundaries of our creativity or push it to the limits? Um, you know, for, for me, um, I guess it's always, I've always had a physical outlet, um, you know, sort of as long as I can remember, I was on a wrestling mat before I, you know, could tie my shoes, um, just cause I was the youngest of, of three brothers. Um, so that was just part of my, not really my character, but just part of my personality growing up was just constant physical outlet. Um, and so that's, that's, that's carried me through, um, to today I'm 42 years old, but I still, that's a very important part of who I am. Um, not, not wrestling anymore, but just a physical expression. Um, that's why I really enjoy rock climbing and, you know, uh, distance running, those, those sorts of things that allow you to sort of set your own, own goals, uh, and, and live, live in your own little space that you can, can control. So I, you know, I think that's an important part. Most, most of the people that I know that are, uh, have the closest thing to, balance and contentment in their life have some sort of physical outlet. Mm. Um, and that can be, you know, walking on the beach or going in the mountains or riding a bike or whatever, or just living an active lifestyle. Uh, but I, I do think as, as humans, I think it's in our nature to have that, um, that as part of our sort of daily structure. And I think it's something that the modern world allows us to very quickly do away with, uh, cause there, there's so much convenience that you don't, necessarily have to have that as, as an outlet. Um, I think that's, that's a lot of risk, but the beauty is it's also something you, you control. Um, and then I think we also have a, um, you know, a creative side, uh, that everybody, um, has somewhere inside of them that they want to tap into. So I, uh, you know, with our, our kids are six and four, so you'd really try to explore and, and make that, make options available to them. Not, not everyone's a, you know, a, a Picasso or a Beethoven, but introduction to art and dancing and music, I think is really important at a young age. Um, you know, I started playing the piano when I was a little kid, uh, 
which was a great outlet and, you know, all, on and off over the years, it's been part of my life. And now that my kids are old enough to start getting into instruments, I've sort of reintroduced it as part of my sort of daily routine. And it's just a great, um, it's a great outlet. It wakes up a whole different part of your, your brain. I know for me, I can't sit and play the piano for 30 minutes and also think about, you know, the stress of some contract or, you know, whether I got in a good workout this morning. It's, it's a totally different um, side of your head, um, which I think is really important. I think we tend to ch- channel too much energy into just one part of our, our, our world. And then I think for me, the fourth component, um, so between sort of your professional, the physical, creative, and the other is, is, is family, which, and these are no, no particular order. I put for me personally, families that, that are more priority that I try to focus on and make sure that's in balance. Um, and that can be, you know, your wife and kids or your, uh, just a spouse, your partner, your, your parents, whatever the case may be. That's, you know, that's an, for me personally, an incredible part of, of, of all the, all the other parts of a balanced life for me flow from that. If that's out of order, then there's always going to be stress in the other parts. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, I, I really want to talk about, uh, Navy SEAL training only because I think for many of us, we're exposed to it, like you said, through a combination of myth and truth. And I guess what I really want to find out is what's myth, what's truth, and what are the mindset and psychological lessons that you've brought into your life, uh, from that kind of training and how can we apply it to ours? So lots of questions in one. Sure. Um, so what's myth and what's truth? That's always kind of a, a funny way to approach it. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, so, um, I'm five, eight, one fifty on a good day. Um, I just say that to sound cool. It's more like one forty-five. But uh, so the, one myth is that we're all six-two and you know, two hundred ten pounds. Uh, the they always say when you graduate, bud, you automatically uh, grow three inches and forty pounds. So uh, that that's de- there's definitely an idea of these you know sort of cheap, superhuman people. Um, that's not really a necessary component of of, of the community. Never, never has been. Um, there's no there's no single body type that that uh, it that it demands. Um, you have to have you know decent physical coordination and capability, and that's kind of the entry point. Everything else can be built upon that. Um, the other myth I would say is that we all, especially in the SEAL teams, that we're all we all love the water and we're impervious to the cold. Um, the you know you spend enough time in 53 degree water in, in San Diego or anywhere around the world. And, you develop a healthy respect for what it's like to be near hypothermia. Um, it doesn't make you love getting in cold water by any means, uh, which is another interesting part of sort of what it, what it does for you sort of on the reality side is, and this is what's really unique about any uh, special operations community um, or just elite sort of community, I think in, in many different spaces uh, is that part of the purpose of the training um, whether by design or it's just sort of evolved this way, probably a mix of both, is it does an incredible job of teaching people, the people that make it through these programs, what what their edges look like, what their what their natural boundaries are, and then what they how they function as they get close to that edge. So uh, you know to give that some uh, some realistic sort of example, like I I don't. I'm not impervious, no, no, no seals being is impervious to, you know, hypothermia or, you know, phys- physical exhaustion by staying up for two, three days in a row. Uh, but I've done that enough as anybody in the community, we've all done that enough to know, oh, I'm getting hypothermia. Um, therefore, here's what's about to happen. My mental capacity is about to shut down by about 30 percent. If I stay like this for another two hours, um, I'm going to be completely useless. I won't be able to manipulate anything with my hands. In another six hours, I'm going to shut down entirely. And so I'm now early enough in that cycle that I need to start telling my teammates, hey, I, I am, I'm on the road to shutting down. I need to, I need to warm myself up or I'm going to be a liability to this, what we're doing right now in about, in about two hours, um, which is a pretty unique um, part of all that. And the same thing goes for mental exhaustion. You, you develop the ability to recognize, okay, I've been, I've been up for too long. I'm about to start making or I'm currently making unsound decisions. And because everybody's been through that level of, of sort of rigor in the training and everybody's been on that edge before, there's nothing wrong with saying, 
hey, fellas, I've been up for 48 hours. There's probably just pure dribble coming out of my mouth right now. So let's take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, or I need to step back and shut it down for six hours because I'm no longer value added to what we're trying to solve for here. Um, and that's, that's probably one of the lesser understood realities of that type of training, what it does for you and, and, and your own understanding of how you operate physically and mentally. Hmm. Let me ask you this. What, uh, pushes people to their breaking point and causes them to quit? Um, it's a subset of those, of that second half is, um, you know, it's, there's, there's lots of factors. Um, but you know, it's rarely the intensity of a specific, uh, event. It's the anticipation of how bad the next event is going to be. So I'll give you an example. Like there's plenty of books out there or documentary documentaries around seal training or other sorts of, 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 special operations training pipelines. And if you watch them with any sort of nuanced eye or read the, read the materials that are out there, rarely is, you know, is it on, you know, some road march in the Ranger Regiment where you've got a, you know, 80 pound ruck and you're, you're 12 miles into a 20, 20 mile sort of, you know, endless thing. Is someone going to raise their hands and say, I, I quit. Um, same thing with the seal selection process, you know, very rarely as I was going through it, was there, you know, we're we in the middle of a swim and somebody just raises their hand and say, Hey, it's too cold. It's too long. I'm out of here. Or the, you know, the, the, the sand is just too soft today. I can't keep running. Most people, um, if they drop out during that's because of an injury that they just can't sustain anymore. Uh, most people will, will finish the event and then, you know, you get an hour to recharge and get some other gear ready. Boom, boom, boom. And now it's, you know, it's 10 at night, it's getting colder, and, and, and the next task is to do the, the, same, the same swim in the dark or whatever. You know you can do it. You just did it. You have the physical capability. You know the water isn't any colder. Um, but the, the idea of having to go back in and do it again and the uncertainty that when we finish that one, is there going to be yet another one? Because part of the, the idea that these whole, the way these sort of selection programs work is a certain amount of mis- mystery around what's next and what's next. So the fear of the unknown uh, really becomes a mental blocker. And so you, you know you have the capability to deal with the cold and the stress and the, and the physical requirements. Uh, but people tend to get on these long time horizons and, and they fear the, the second or third thing that's far out of their control. And so it's those in the gaps in between when they have that time to really reflect on the unknown is when they'll sort of quietly walk off to the side and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not going out to the next evolution. Um, there's very rarely did I see a sort of a, a dramatic, uh, person quitting, you know, right in the middle of something. It's, it's usually just off to the side and, and uh, they just don't show back up for, for the next thing you're required to do. And I think it selects for, I think this is really important, uh, skill in life is there are times when you, you have to think on a, a long time horizon mm-hmm. and there are times when it, uh, is good to keep your focus really on a short time horizon. Um, it's true in the military. I think it's true in other areas of life and to be able to toggle between those is, is it, is a learned skill. And that, that's one of the reasons that athletes, um, tend to do, um, uh, better than average in high selection, uh, special operations communities because you, you grow up, uh, realizing from a very early age, you know, without any sort of conscious, uh, thought on it, that you toggle between short and time, short and long time horizons. So, you know, uh, you don't go into, you know, day three of practice when wrestling season starts and you're sort of out of shape and the coach is mad and it's a really hard practice and you just get your, you get whipped up on by somebody else on the team. You don't think, wow, this is going to be, you know, six months of this. It's going to be like this every day. I just can't do it. Some people do. And then they, they sort of naturally attrit themselves out of that, that level of competition. And the people that are hardwired to be able to toggle say, that was a really bad practice. It's day three. Tomorrow's going to be better. I'm going to get some rest tonight. And they come back and they do a little bit better, a little bit better the next day. And uh, it's, a really, it's a really important skill, not just in the military, but I think in life. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so this has been my favorite part of the conversation because this is the stuff that I really want to talk about is, is taking sort of these mindset lessons uh, from your SEAL training and applying them to our lives. You, know, you mentioned a couple of things uh, in, in that last bit where you talked about sort of finding our boundaries uh, learning to function at edges and managing fear. And I'm interested in how we start to bring those lessons into our lives without necessarily having to go through SEAL training. Mm, yeah. Um, I think everybody does some version of this. Uh-huh. Uh, 
you know, anyone that's successful anywhere has, has got some sort of um, process that they're doing. With how, how conscious is, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the advantage of um, something like SEAL training is you, you are forced, most people are forced to find that edge. Like there's, if you've been awake for four days and you're freezing cold and somebody's telling you at two in the morning to go sit in, you know, 55 degree water, there's no rational part of your brain that says, oh, that's a great idea. I think I, I would be doing that if you weren't here anyway. So um, you, you, you know, okay, I'm, I'm forcing myself to fight through basically every level of rational thought that my brain wants to throw at me right now. And so that's, you know, that's sort of a reflective thing that stays with you for, for a long time. But I think, you know, and lots of sort of competitive um, spaces have some part of that, um, that, that those that come up inside of it have, are, develop over, over time. Um, so I think, you know, in, in other spaces, I'll give you an example where I see things like this and that some people can control for and some have a difficult time, uh, handling would be, so imagine you're an up and coming, you know, VP or whatever in, in, a, in a big organization and, and your opportunity to, you know, pitch your boss on the next big project or something like that. Uh, which, you know, some things that are pretty common like that. So you see people get buried in sort of the fear of the unknown of what if the pitch doesn't go well? What if I don't get this position? What if, um, what if I get it and it doesn't go well? Um, what if I get halfway through and the, and the project team doesn't think I'm capable of it? You know, we all have these sort of inner voices that, that tell, you know, fill us with fear and doubt and, uh, it's human nature. And it's one of our, I think, you know, humanity wide, one of the, one of the big sort of anchors that we all put on ourselves are, are these sort of inner voices that, you know, to, not to get too kooky about it, but they, they go back to our, you know, our childhood or our early experiences coming up where you were never fast enough or smart enough or likable enough in junior high or whatever the case may be. And that whether people admit it or not, you know, there, there's part of that voice that's whispering in the ear when they walk into the boardroom to, you know, as, as a C-suite exec, um, so I think really understanding yourself and developing an awareness around, hey, I'm, I'm always going to have this little voice that thinks I'm X, Y, and Z. But in reality, um, I, I've done projects in the past and been successful at them. I've built teams and th- I've had you know mostly positive feedback from the team members. I'm, I'm being asked to pitch for this next position based on a track record of success. So let me focus on the near term thing, which is I've got a, you know, I've got a boss that says for whatever reason he thinks I'm a capable person to walk in and, and, and vie for this next, next position or this next project. And that's my immediate thing that I'm going to solve for. Um, I'm not going to think about, you know, the, the little voice in my head that's saying six months from now, I might have a failing project and a team that doesn't like me. Uh, but that's, that's hard because that's, that's a really deep part of all, all of our psychology. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns, but a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I would imagine that uh, with your training, uh, a good amount of, of what you've learned is how to make decisions rather quickly. And, and this came actually from my business partner. He said, I, I sent him a text saying, hey, I'm talking to a Navy SEAL. Anything you want to know? He said, yeah. He said, can you ask him how to make decisions quickly and how to recover from setbacks quickly? Um, yeah, I think in the, you know, you definitely, uh, Navy SEALs don't have a, you know, the corner on this market for sure. <laughs> you, can, you can look at, I think on, on a team level, there's a whole sort of, uh, there's a developing school of thought uh, being pioneered by uh, a, a professor called Preston Klein, who we, we talk about in, in, we reference some of his work in Team of Teams. He's up at Wharton and he's done some really interesting studies on mission critical teams. So that's sort of one aspect to it that's maybe worth diving into. And then there's the individual level as well. So you think of, uh, you know, a, a surgeon, you know, in a high risk sort of intense environment. I mean, he, that surgeon has, she has a team around her of, you know, supporting staff, but she also has herself in the moment. So, and same thing on a, on a mission critical team, like a SEAL team or a, a group of firefighters that are rushing into a building or something like that. Um, so the question is, you know, making fast decisions and then re- recovering from, from errors. I think what those, if you live your life in that sort of environment, um, like I'll use a SEAL team as, a, as an example, cause that's what I know. Uh, you do develop I, the best leaders I saw developed, uh, an inherent ability to quickly sort of triage information. Um, and this was true at the tactical level, operational level, strategic level, and some were better at different, at triaging at different levels better than they were at others. So by triaging, I mean, um, you know, at the tactical level, the ability to quickly say, okay, we have, you know, here's the situation. We have this number of operators on the ground. We have an enemy threat that way. Here are my supporting assets that I can call to the fight. If we have to get out of this situation, we're going to go this way or this way. Um, Here's what threats that the enemy has that they can present upon us. And then as things shift, um, you know, if there's a, they, they can quickly triage between, okay, there's what we're doing now has caused some sort of local problem set over here. So there's maybe civilians gathering on the other side of the city. And I also now see that, um, the, the threat we're facing, they're moving in some sort of heavy weapon system. So that can all be overwhelming information because it is sort of, you know, three dimensional chess in some ways. But the best tactical leaders um, that I saw, and I certainly would not put myself in, in that tier. I mean, there's some folks that are just amazing in those environments. They can quickly say, and they wouldn't consciously you know, uh, talk about it like this in the moment. But they just know that, that threat to my right, the gathering civilians, I'm not worried about that. I've got five to ten minutes to deal with that. This heavy weapons system, major problem. 
what assets do I have that can deal with it? Is it guys on the ground? Is it overhead assets, et cetera? Or do we have to move my position and quickly just sort of live in the flow of that moment? And they're constantly racking and stacking, um, it, you know, different data points inside their head and, 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 and flowing their organization to, in, in response to it. So some of it is similar to how, you know, an NFL quarterback, um, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a great book called How We Think. Mm-hmm. And it talks about Tom Brady um, on a, on a you know, two-minute drive and the number of decisions, if you broke it down second by second, that he made as quarterback in that drive. You know, it's, it's just off the charts, the reads that they're making every single moment, reading complex defenses and, 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 and nailing the decision points. Now, if, if probably in the moment if you just asked to go back and say, sketch out the decisions you made in that two minutes, there might be seven things on the piece of paper. Uh, but, you know, he's far exceeded the 10,000 hour rule and he just lives in the flow of the moment. Uh-huh. And I saw that, you know, similar things at an operational level or a strategic level. I, I spent most of my career really in that sort of operational section and um, certainly wasn't a master of it, but de- developed some ability to say, Okay, we're in a, we're on a complex battlefield trying to coordinate between different units, and quickly be able to rack and stack. You know, on a if we have a you know we're on this pretty tight, a lot of the times in Iraq, what tight twenty four hour sort of cycles of missions, and you could look at different sets of variables and inputs coming off of you know intelligence reports and and our forces moving around, et cetera, et cetera, and be able to uh, sort of triage your your factors and say, okay, based on these three things don't really matter. These two, I need answers on right now. If we're going to, or within the next hour, if we're going to make the right decisions in the next in the next mission cycle, um, these three are below my level. I'm going to hand that down to the tactical guys; they can solve for it. And if you have the folks that develop that ability, um, wasn't always perfect, but they tended to trend toward right on any given given cycle. And if you sat back and watched what they were doing, that's they were they were constantly running through a mental checklist. But again. They would have a hard time articulating it in the moment. The best thing I always found was just sort of observe them and see what what got their immediate attention, what got pushed to the right, and what got pushed down. Uh, and that, that's that's what I where I was able to learn the most from them. Wow. So you mentioned that you had uh, an opportunity to both work on the ground and strategically, and I'm curious what you learned about working on the ground from working strategically, and what you learned about working strategically from working on the ground. Yeah, so I'd say the, you know the military. We talk about tactical, operational, and strategic levels of the organization. Tactical is you know I'm a I'm a I'm an operator on the ground, um, out on a mission, you know, exchanging fire with the enemy, that sort of thing. Every, that's everyone's sort of Hollywood version of, of right. you know, operational is you know the guy in the headquarters with the headset on and sort of moving forces around, or you know in, in the in the business world this is sort of mid management, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's trust me it's cooler than that. Uh, the uh, and then the strategic level is, you know, um, you know, SVP and C-suite. So in the in, in the military, that's your, you know, colonels and general officers, you know, one star, two star, that sort of thing. Um, now Hollywood has has this sort of classic version of um, how it gets more and more dysfunctional as you go, get more senior, and the, the guys in the field, hey, the guys at the headquarters, and the guys at the headquarters think the strategy guys are a bunch of idiots, blah blah blah. It's not really like that. I mean, it's it's there, certainly there's elements of that that you develop different understanding at different levels. But um, what made the Joint Special Operations work so well, one of the components was what, what we called uh, sh- shared consciousness, a, a level of understanding between the operator on the ground and the most senior leaders you know, in our world, the three and four star level that were you know, the, the folks that were talking to the Secretary of Defense or the President on a, on a, on a regular cadence. And so it was very unique for a distributed organization. I mean, we were thousands of people around the globe. Uh, but the, if it mattered the most, the, the junior tactical level operator would have access to understand what was going on at the most strategic, um, tiers inside the organization so that their, their nightly sort of decisions that they were making on the battlefield were, were informed by that because we, you know, obviously as a force, you put that level of forces in a very very strategic positions on a, on a pretty regular cycle. So you want the most level of what we call, like I said, shared consciousness inside the force so that the, the, the tactical level decisions can be guided by what matters at a strategic level. Now, what I learned as I moved up that, um, was, so I, I came into the organization in 2003 
as, as uh, McChrystal had just taken over uh, JSOC. Um, so if I sort of truncated my career, I spent, you know, uh, six, seven years or so sort of in the tactical world. Um, decent experience, um, but most of my formative experience happened at the operational level. And, and the, this sort of pie chart of where you spend your career varies for everyone. Everyone is just sort of a lot of it's fate and where you, where you end up at different times. At the operational level, I was able to spend time in, you know, in a few different theaters really seeing how that's your mid-management. And I, I happened to be there at the right point where, where McChrystal was really opening up the, the communication between the strategic and the tactical and if, if you were well positioned and, and you timed it right, you got to sit right in the middle of this amazing flow and see how all of this was being coordinated now as this broad network of everyone had equal access to information at all the time. And your job as that, as that mid-level operations person was to ensure that the communication and the network was working rather than the traditional mindset, which was in any organization. When I'm mid-level management, I incentivize to make sure that the system works. So I... I own the book. So there's a book on how we're going to do this. I own the book and I'm going to make sure everybody's doing the right thing at the right time because I've learned the process and I'm going to make sure we're doing it right in, in hopes that eventually I'll be at the strategic level and I can write the book. And so what we learned at that operational level was the book is, the book is dated. The book, it does not work anymore. And so we got to throw the book out and we have to redesign the system in real time. And at the, at that mid-level operations, uh, management system, isn't open-minded and constantly helping to rewire our, our network system that we were creating, then it was going to, it was going to stagnate. So that was pretty amazing for me. And then I was never a strategic level leader, but I, the, the exposure I had to it was at, uh, really that year when I was working as, as General Crystal's aide de camp a year in Iraq, watching him run the senior level staff of our organization, which at that point, like I said, was spread around globally and then interact with all the other strategic leaders on the battlefield, military, civilian, and then back in the United States. And, you know, as, a, as an aide, you, you know, you're, you're a few feet from, from the principal for the whole year. Uh, so you get to really, you don't have a, a, a functional role in making any decisions, but you get to sort of immersed in how that communication happens. So I was very fortunate to be, be able to see it at all three, three levels. Wow. So one idea that you brought up uh, in in that whole monologue was this idea of shared consci- consciousness, and I'm interested in how we bring share, shared consciousness into the teams we work on and build high trust teams outside of the military and outside of SEALs, like in our own lives and in the work that we're doing. Yeah, um, no, I think it's really important in today's in today's world. I mean, so something about back up a little bit. Our 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 belief on the battlefield in about, and I say our belief, I mean, McChrystal was the first person to really start this conversation, but then, then trickled out quickly inside of um, our part of the special operations community and, and then eventually beyond beyond that, um, was this. Somewhere around 2000, late 2003, early 2004 in Iraq, McChrystal was the first person that, at the senior leadership level to stand up and say, hey, I, I think we're actually losing this war. Um, we, we are getting outmaneuvered, outpaced, on sort of any way you look at it by um, the Al-Qaeda threat in Iraq. And we know we have the best operators, the best helicopters, the best, all these other sort of variables that they can't compete with. And we know that whenever we get to the right place on the right time, we win in the moment. All that being said, they're still outmaneuvering us and they're gaining, gaining territory and they're increasing their numbers um, even while we're winning in all these small little pockets. Therefore, there's sort of, there's a systems level problem here, which is, was his basic argument going into it, which is we need to back up and look at how we function as an organization. Because I know the problem isn't that we have skilled operators on the ground or amazing helicopter pilots or communication systems. The problem is we're not moving information and decisions fast enough to be able to compete with the speed of, a, of an organic network that is Al-Qaeda. Uh, so how do we scale the effectiveness of that small team that, you know, SEAL troop or army unit or whatever the case may be? How do we scale that up onto the enterprise level? Uh, and which is where team of teams, the title became, we, you know, we started to use that language. We have to expand up that model and really be an interconnected global team of, of teams to make this work. Um, so that fast forward a, a few years, um, at the end of it, we were a bit of a, a hybrid system where we had not done away with the org charts on the wall. So we still retained the strength and discipline of a, of a hierarchical system because 
you know, any, any organization, at least in today's period in history needs, needs a way to do payroll and hire people and train people and, and communicate along linear sort of functionalities in the military. That's how you train soldiers and deploy them. That's how you buy aircraft carrier, whatever the case may be. But on a night to night basis in, in the fight, uh, in places like Iraq or Afghanistan or other, other places, we were a interconnected, uh, network of individual nodes or individual teams that could crawl, quickly cross hierarchical boundaries between verticals that in the old system would have been separated. So you no, no longer had to go up with information across for a decision and back down to the other side. You could just quickly connect cross-functionally um, throughout, the, uh, throughout the network. So the, the components that we, we talk about, shared consciousness is one of four key elements. So we started in, in writing Team of Teams and now reflecting back on the experiences there. We spent quite a few years um, since we've all gotten out, really trying to um, break down what made that system work. So at the team level, we, we talk about two main drivers. You have to have high levels of trust uh, between individuals, both uh, in a perfect world, you trust them as an individual, like I'll trust you with my to watch my kids, but I also trust the information you send me that it's going to be accurate. I know you will go to the best of your abilities. You will not send me in, inaccurate information. Therefore, I will move on it quickly when I receive it and not try to double check your homework. Uh, and then a common purpose amongst the team. So you, you, you know why you're here and what, you know, what your purpose is in life. Uh, so our goal was to s- scale those two drivers onto the organizational level. And we, we knew to, to do that, we had to create this idea of shared consciousness, which is how do you create this broad understanding of the right information at the right time. So at the small team level, people can finish each other's sentences. How do we get that at, you know, at a global enterprise level? And we knew if we could get that in place – we would get to the fourth and arguably the most critical end state driver, which is this idea of empowered execution, where you now, if you're that tactical level person, you have enough strategic context that you can move with and you're, you are held accountable to move with high levels of speed and, and accuracy on a, a very autonomous and independent uh, cycle. And so to, to, to beat the speed variable, we knew not everybody can ask for approvals about every little thing, which is the incentive system in the traditional sort of hierarchy. We need people to just swim in this information and know that they're empowered and expected to take action when the timing is right. And so as we, when we combined all of those variables, uh, it, that's when the flywheel really started to turn inside of the, our, the special operations community. So uh, on, the, on the business side, I think all of those – our thesis coming out was this applies to many other sectors. This is not unique to the battlefield. And here's why we believe that to be the case. Because this, as I said earlier, despite the fact that we had great helicopters and great operators and all these comparative variables that were much better than the force we faced, something's equalizing the problem here because they're way better and faster than, than terrorist organizations were just 15, 20 years ago. The differentiator is we're in the information age. So everyone can now push and receive data as quickly as anyone else. First world does not solve for that problem anymore. There's no, there's no superior economic system that can allow you to move information faster than a distributed network like, like ISIS. And so we underestimated how much of an impact that was going to have. And we, we spent years sort of redesigning our system to account for it. So we, our, our theory of the case was, if that's true, then obviously everybody's in the information aid. So every enterprise is probably dealing with some version of this problem, which is how do big traditional organizations adapt to the speed of the current environment that the information is sort of layered on top of all of us, whether we, we like it or not? And so um, I think in, in, in this industry, um, a lot of the same solutions, and that's what we do now in, in our group, a lot of the same solutions in principle apply. And so you have to be willing to push an organization away from just the traditional org chart more toward this hybrid system where it's allowed to flow like a network when, it's, when needed uh, and, and so we really believe in pushing along two sort of vectors, one being the, the processes that drive the organization, sort of throwing the rule book out a little bit and uh, communicating with much broader uh, swaths of the, of the organization on a, usually a faster cadence than most organizations are, are, find themselves in today's world. Uh, and and inclu- the faster you get, the more people you want to include in the conversation. And so at, at our at our peak, when I was Stan's aide de camp, we had we did a daily synchronization meeting, a global video teleconference, 
which would have you know seven to eight thousand people on the net um, listening in real time to get that strategic level level con- uh, context. That was sort of the backbone of shared consciousness. And then if you're going to, as you move an organization further and further down that line, you also have to develop the, the, the second vector is, do you have the leadership behaviors in place that support that shift? And so you're, you're creating a much more inclusive, sort of a radical transparency-based organization. And so your, your traditional C-suite behaviors aren't necessarily uh, established to, to support communicating with that thousands of people every day in real time about things that are that you don't know. So once the, both of the what we found was we, we were moving along both those vectors in constant iteration. And that's what, you know, I believe in organizations, if you can get those two things moving toward, you know, a much more network based, you know, information age sort of system, then you can, you can get there in any, in any space. Wow. I have two last questions. One is, is sort of silly. Uh, but I'm just curious what the difference is uh, between the reality that you experience, you know, being face to face, you know, in something like special operations and the one that we experience through the media of seeing what, you know, is told uh, on the news about places like Iraq. Like what, what's different about how you guys experience and what are we not seeing and, and what can you actually talk about and what are you not allowed to talk about? Mm. Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. I think one of the I'd say what what I saw in my in my younger sort of part of my career, you have your first sort of epiphanies on the, that difference. Um, and you know, our generation hadn't been to war yet, so that's a radically different thing. And what I when I would watch what was going on and watch the uh, the way that it was portrayed in the in the US or globally through the media. I sort of started to look at it like this, and this is not a perfect analogy, but in some ways it's like, you know, putting a um like a mini cam on, you know, the toe of the center shoe in a football game. And that's your only optic into the football game. And then trying to accurate accurately report about what you know what's going on. So you hear a little bit in the huddle, you know when the snap is gone. You, you, you kind of know when the play is over. You might have an idea if it was a run or a pass, and, and you can see yourself advancing up, up the field, you know, if you're on offense or defense. But there's a thousand other things that you have no idea. And so you try to piece it together. And so I would, what, when I would come home and he, sort of hear the media's reflections on what, what had just happened on the last deployment or whatever, that's, it's, not a, it's not a great analogy, but that's sort of how I felt. It's like, okay, you're, you, you know what's, there's a game going on, and you kind of know which way the ball's moving. But... But it's, it's way more complex to try to explain it. And so, uh, you know, part of that's driven by the fact that we're all addicted to this 24-hour news cycle. And so I don't, I, don't really, I don't blame anyone's sector, be it media or consumer or pol- political, whatever the case may be. We're all swimming in this right now, which is – and it's part of this thing of how do we rest – how do we deal with the fact that there's so much information available. And our, our reaction right now we'll, – I think we'll eventually solve for this. But our reaction right now is – just report on everything all the time, whether it's accurate or not. And there's, there's some sort of 24 hour competition going on to both report and consume information. And so you run the risk of everybody, all of us sort of being collectively wrong, mostly wrong all the time about these really complex problems. Um, so, uh, that's one, one of the sort of misperceptions. I guess the other one is, and as a, as a former, you know, active duty member of the military, um, there's a, maybe a, a, a misperception about how most people see the battlefield, which is, um, you know, war, war, war sucks. Um, and that's why, you know, when people go back into, you know, you see, see former military politicians, they, like, a, they tend to be labeled as oftentimes as, as the, the more conservative, thoughtful, let's, let's make sure we have all the information straight. Um, and they'll, you know, some of them get labeled as, you know, they're hedging their bets and they're, they're too scarred by their experiences, et cetera, et cetera. I think the reality is, you know, people that have been over and seen conflict up, up close and personal realize that it's, it destroys things. You know, it's, it's a, I think it's a, unfortunately, it's a necessary part of, you know, how the world exists as we currently know it. Um, but 
most people I know that have spent extended periods in, in combat, they're, they're not warmongers, you know, cause you see what it does to cultures, to families, to, you know, non-combatants, to soldiers, near-term, long-term effects. Um, it's, it's a bad reality of our, you know, uh, of humanity. Um, it doesn't mean I wouldn't, uh, support going into war in the future because sometimes it just has to happen. But I think we have this collective misperception that it's, it's some sort of clean thing with a start date and an end date and you do it and then you win and then you put in the new thing and da, 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 da. Um, we've come to some sort of understanding like that as we see that, okay, we're basically fit in the middle of a, an, uh, you know, an infinite game, arguably in, in, in certain regions around the world. But still, you know, there's a perception like, well, we just want to, we want it to end. Therefore, we're going to withdraw and not get engaged. Well, it's not going to end whether we're there or not, you know. And it didn't start because we showed up. We probably accelerated a, a lot of things. Um, but these are sort of endless realities of, of how, you know, how humanity tends to interact with, with one another. Um, and so I, I think one of the misperceptions is that we can go in and, and fix within two to three years or ten years. And here's the, here's the exit plan and the end state we're going to reach. And da, 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 da. You don't control that. It's, there's so many multidimensional variables. You, you choose to participate or not, but, and you can try to trend it in the right direction. Um, but decisive end states, um, don't, don't really exist in these sorts of conflicts. Wow. Well, Chris, this has been really, really interesting. Uh, a lot of profound lessons, uh, in psychology and mindset, which is, is really what I was hoping for. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, what makes someone, I think it's, my impression has been when you, when you see someone who's, um, who hits their sort of flow state, um, and this is, this is actually pretty interesting to think about because you see it a lot in the military business or any high, probably any, anywhere in life where, you know, that tends to attract sort of driven high performers. Um, if you're wired like that as a person. So you're, you're smart, you're energetic, you're charismatic, whatever, all these things that sort of tend to make, give people, uh, you know, a one up in life. I think early on, some people, and I've, we've all seen this say, I've got all these skills. I want to, and society tells me the thing I should, that's cool is to be a physician or to be rich or to be a politician. Uh, so these early formative experiences tend to, they'll put people on this track. And if they're if they have all the the advantages, they're smart and they go to good school, et cetera, et cetera. They can do that. You can you can become a congressperson, or you can become a physician, or you can be a Navy SEAL. Uh, but oftentimes, people hit you know hit their stride, and they realize this is not really what I'm hardwired to do. There's a lot of things about being a, a physician or a politician that I just don't like. But I now I'm in it, and I'm just going to make the best of it, and you know, at a certain point, I think that tends to catch up with people. Uh, unmistakable people that I've uh, encountered are ones who's, and not everyone gets this out of the gates, but it's when their 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 natural strengths and capabilities, their intellect, their personality, what their sort of that creative, emotional, family th- index all points them toward, uh, that they end up in a profession that allows all of those to be to be expressed. I think that's when you find the most unmistakable people where you say, wow, this, this person's not only incredibly talented in this space, but this is clearly who they're supposed to be in life. And it's unique for people to like, just get on a track and end up there. You know, that's a pretty long shot. Um, that's why I think, you know, life is getting longer. It's a more complex world than it's ever been. Um, so I always encourage people, you know, it's never, it's never too late to shift. And so if you've, you've developed all these great skill sets, being a, being a banker, but you find out that making a lot of money isn't really what drives you quit. You know, there's, it's a long life. Go, what, what are your skill sets? What really makes you passionate? Go do that. Uh, because the opportunities out there, I think way too many people spend their lives in fear of, of the unknown of making a big shift midlife. Um, and I, you know, I've done it. It's one of the most rewarding decisions I ever made. I can imagine, uh, not espousing for the rest of my life. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and your story with our listeners of the Unmistakable Creative. It's been fantastic. Great discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.